0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Are you guys happy to be in church tonight? where else would you rather be on a Sunday night? There's some people down at Cottesloe looking at some sculptures, there's other people in cafes and all that, but I would rather be in (laughs) Camillo in church, so um, that's pretty good. If you are visiting, my name's Dave, great to have you here, and we are in, we're actually beginning a series um, on the Sermon on the Mount, as you can see, and Um, If you weren't here this morning, I haven't listened to all the message, but um, we had Matthew Fricker, Matt Fricker, um, actually kick off this series for us this morning. I would just greatly encourage you to actually um, get into it. Did you have some fun this morning, Matt? It was good? For the life of me, I have no idea why I just didn't get you to do Sunday night as well. (laughs) That would have been easier for me. Anyway, are you guys ready to get into this? Are you some kind of excited? All right, beautiful. Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 in a minute, so you can get your Bibles, and you can either open your Bibles there, or you can turn your Bibles on, because Bibles come in all sorts of um, shapes and sizes these days. But um, the title of today's message is called, The Kingdom is Here. The Kingdom is Here, and um, what I'm going to endeavor to do is actually try to take us into that moment um, of Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 5, and, and and try to get us in that moment as to what Jesus was doing, what he was endeavouring to do. And I really believe that as we start this series off, if we can understand what Jesus is doing, if we can get some kind of idea as to what's happening In this message, it's going to actually help us as we journey throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, and as you may have already guessed, if you're part of our church, yes, this is going to take some time to go through the Sermon on the Mount, so hold on tight. We're going to be in for a great, great um, journey together. Well, today, all of us, um, it is my hope that all of us are going to take on the posture of a student. And... um, As always, unfortunately, I need to be up here um, trying to unpack Scripture, but I really need to be down there as well because I know for myself, I'm really wanting to take on this posture of a student because together as New Spring Church and also as Calamunda, as we did this morning, um, we are delving into the teaching of Jesus. And what I'm hoping is that the things that we've learned over the last couple of years, there's going to be some ideas, there's going to be some things that are going to be pulled together and they're going to be crystallized. And you're actually going to see that what Jesus is inviting us into is so profoundly bigger than what any of us ever thought possible. In fact, what we're going to actually try to grapple with and understand is what does it really mean to be the church of Jesus Christ? And we've been talking about this for at least 12 months. What does it mean to be the church? How is it that we could possibly have a greater vision of the church instead of having such a small little itty bitty vision of the church? What does it mean to be the church or to use more poignant language? What does it actually mean to live under Jesus as King? Because we use words, Jesus is Lord. Amen. We sing about the Lordship of Christ. And if that word means king and if Christ means king, what does it actually mean? Like brass knuckles, what does it mean to actually live under the reign of Jesus? That's what we're going to try and do and try to discover together as a church as we journey through this sermon over the next couple of months. As far as I can kind of see, and it's kind of my perspective, I don't think that the church is generally held in high esteem in certain parts of society. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yeah. <laughs> in some parts of society, in a lot of parts of society, would that be kind of even fairer? The, the, the world doesn't really see the church as like the way we should see the church, really. And um, sometimes I think that we can get this victim mindset and say, you know what, the world's been really mean to the church. Boo-hoo, poor little church getting picked on all the time. We're getting picked on, picked on, picked on. I actually don't think that's happening. There are actually some, um, some feeds that I've read on Twitter and Facebook and all that. And there are some Christians who actually um, put forward and say, you know what, at the moment the church is getting persecuted. And to be honest, I don't think that the Western church is getting persecuted because that would actually be an insult to our brothers and sisters around the world who genuinely are being persecuted right now. We we talk about, oh, we seem to be losing our our freedoms. And really what the Western church is worried about at the moment is that we've had a lot of influence and we've had a lot of power and the church seems to be losing its power in certain arenas in society. And what happens, what really does happen is that we, we tend to define power in the same way that the world sees power. And we're supposed to be living in resurrection power. And the definition of resurrection power is God hanging on a cross. So I don't think that's actually the case either. Now, I actually believe, and, um, I, uh, and it's not just me. There's actually a lot of um, church leaders around the world who've made this observation this is, we suspect that the reason why the church isn't taken too seriously in this present cultural moment probably has more to do with the fact that possibly maybe, just put it out there, maybe we as Christians don't take Jesus too seriously. That could actually be the issue at hand right here in this particular cultural moment in which God's asked us to live and serve. Sky Juthani in his book, What If Jesus Was Serious, a book I've been trying to promote over, I think it was since like November or something. He actually says in his introduction, a really profound insight. He says this, What if the underlying malady Christians, afflicting Christians today isn't that we take Jesus too seriously, but that we fail to take him seriously enough? What if much of the culture's judgment of, Christi- of Christians isn't the result of obeying Jesus, but the result of Christians ignoring him? Poor, that hits you, doesn't it? You know, come to church on a Sunday night, that is going to really encourage you. <laughs> what a great way to start. <laughs> And I can't help but think of the words of Jesus as I'm listening to that. Um, last uh, A couple of years ago, we were going through Mark, and I remember as we went through Mark chapter 4, and we were talking about this parable, the parable of the soils that Jesus is talking about, this parable that He gives us as, as a result of, of His family and, and of the laws and the scribes rejecting His teaching. He, he talks about this parable, and He ends the parable by saying, having eyes they can't see and having ears they can't hear, and he was actually putting forward this, this idea that it is the rejection of my teaching, is the rejection of my words that actually leads you to be like an idol, to be like a statue. You might have eyes and you can't see. You might have ears and you can't hear. And what Jesus is saying, how you receive my teaching, that means absolutely everything. That is the fundamental question about how we actually receive the teachings and, and how we obey that. Later on in, the, in um, the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get that to it in a couple of um, months' time, but he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27, something of a similar sentiment. Jesus says this, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Everyone say wise. wise. Wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on the bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds a house on sand and when the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against the house it collapses with a mighty crash. This entire sermon of the mount which we're about to kick off in a couple of minutes this is actually the teachings of Jesus or what Augustine has actually said it is the perfect standard of the Christian life and in this sermon Jesus drives home one haunting question. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? And that's the question that you and I are asked every single day, and especially as we go through this sermon, the question, will you and I follow Jesus? How are we going to listen to the teachings of Jesus? Are we going to be able and willing not just to hear the words, not just to hear the syllables, not just hear the sounds, but to actually start walking this word out? That word listen is so nuanced. It means more than hear, it means to obey. Are we going to do that? And we might sit here and say, yes, amen. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to obey Jesus. But what happens when Jesus starts meddling with your life? Who really enjoys it when the Lord starts meddling with your life? Have you ever had the Lord meddle with your life? Right? Seriously? He seems to like take great delight in meddling in people's lives, right? Like you're going about your life, you're just enjoying it, you're just kicking it, you know? And you think you're kicking it with the Lord and then all of a sudden, he taps you on the shoulder and he points at somebody and says, you know what, Dave? That needs to change now. He starts meddling, man. He says things. In this sermon, he's going to say some things. He's going to say, you're supposed to love your enemies. What? It's like, are you serious? That sounds like the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Doesn't it? That person's trying to kill me and you want me to love them? Like, so, so what are we going to do when God says that? Because evidently, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, if we have that sign Christian on us, we actually are supposed to love our enemies. In other words, we don't actually have any enemies. Funny, isn't it? Like some of the Christian movements, we actually make movement and we cause movement by actually having enemies and we're supposed to love our enemies. That doesn't make any sense. You know what are you going to do there? What about sacrifice? We don't like sacrifice. And then Jesus comes and you're going to have to sacrifice. What about when Jesus starts meddling in some real personal stuff like your money? Have you ever had the Lord meddle with your money? Oh man, I remember. I remember um, a couple of years ago. Well, a lot of years ago now. It would have been at least twenty years ago. A couple of years ago, I had this beautiful Martin guitar. It was good. Oh, it sounded sweet. It was beautiful. It was just, it smelled good. Have you ever smelled an acoustic guitar? They smell so good. If if you love guitars, have you ever gone into like mega music or something and into the acoustic guitar section and you can smell the wood of an acoustic? It is, oh. And I was like leading the the youth and young adult worship team. I had this beautiful maiden guitar. And the time came where I actually had to put down my guitar and start picking up a microphone, right? So it came when I actually had to hand over the worship team. And guess what the Lord's saying to me about this Martin guitar? This is what he says, word for word, and I did not like it at all. He said, Dave, I give you tools to use, not necessarily keep. And he actually picked out this young punk, <laughs> and he said, I want you to give this expensive, beautiful Martin guitar to this up-and-coming worship leader. Do you think I really like that? I can stand here and say, oh, Dave, you're so generous. Dave, you're so amazing. That is the Lord meddling with you, man. Medal with you. So he might tell (laughs) you, no, (laughs) Simon loves his guitar. But but what about things like that? What about our sexual ethic? We're living in a world where it says, like, anything is permissible. You can do whatever you want. Ultimate freedom. But we know that if you keep on going down in a certain trajectory, if you certainly go down a certain pathway, that doesn't lead to flourishing. That leads to destruction. So the Lord wants to say some things, doesn't He? You know, And He's going to start meddling with that. He's going to start picking at that. And not because He's wanting to be a party pooper, because He has His idea. He has something in mind for your betterment, for your flourishing. So He wants to start meddling. You know, he's going to come to us in this series and he's going to start talking to us about anger. Anyone get angry? He's going to come to us and talk about anger and he's going to say, why are you opening up that doorway of anger? Because it might start with anger, but it might end with murder. And like, Why, why are you doing that? It's almost like, like on a like, like any given night, it would be like in the writer household, right? We open up every single window and we open up the front door and we put on this big neo sign that is flashing for any criminal who's walking by to say, guess what? The doors are open, the windows are open. Come in and take whatever you want. And that's like anger because it opens up this window and it allows other things to come in and it might start off being angry but it might end up in murder and exactly the same with lust as well it's like he's saying i don't want you to open up those windows i don't want you to open up those doors because it might start off with lust but it'll end with adultery he's actually trying to provide a pathway of flourishing for us Uh, adultery divorce verbal manipulation man christians are good at this one especially especially when we actually start using scripture Oh, my goodness. I tell you what, if you want to have an interesting experience, become a senior pastor and like have a bunch of Christians come up to you and try to manipulate you by using Scripture. Oh, my goodness. What have I seen? Like Verbal manipulation. He wants to talk to us about what it means to be good on his terms, by his definition. Not our definition, his definition. He wants to talk to us about what it means to actually truly be religious. According to his definition, not our definition. He wants to talk and he wants to meddle with our lives and tell us what it means to love. According to what he says love is, not according to what we say love is. He wants us to actually understand what it means to actually really hold power. To really hold power. There have been enough stories in the Christian church around the globe over the last couple of months to know that there have been people who have been held in such high esteem and they have abused their power in the context of church. But the Lord wants to actually meddle with that kind of stuff. That we hold it well. Deception and also leadership. What does it mean to lead when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. You see, I think Sky Jathani is bang on when he actually talks about culture's judgment of Christians isn't the result of us obeying Jesus, but the result of Christians largely ignoring Him. And we are going to be stepping into all of these things over the next couple of months. So rock up the church every single week, and I guarantee you the Lord is going to meddle with you. He's going to be pestering you. He's going to be picking on stuff, and He's going to be like sort of like going and like looking under rocks because he loves us as the church and he actually has our betterment in mind and he actually has a mindset of this kingdom mindset which he wants us to step into fully. So it's going to be good. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 935 is a sketch of Jesus' mission and his ministry. What is Jesus actually about? What exactly is Jesus doing? In Matthew we actually see that Jesus is teaching and he's preaching in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, which we call Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're going to go through. And then from there, he starts healing in Matthew chapter 8 to 9. So the Sermon on the Mount is this comprehensive um, sketch of the teaching and the preaching of Jesus Christ. As he goes around his every single day, what is Jesus teaching? What is he preaching? Well, this is actually a sketch of what we would have expected to actually hear come out of the mouth of Jesus um, if we were there in that present day. Matthew is actually saying to his audience, and Matthew is saying to New Spring Church as we go through this series, here is the message of Jesus, chapters 5 to 7, and here are the actions of Jesus, chapters 8 to 9. Now, you're going to have to decide what you do with that. What you're going to do with that. One theologian um, Said this, the sermon therefore is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and gathered around Jesus. So, what exactly is Jesus doing? Or to put another way, what happens when a group of random people, people that you would never expect, because as we're reading through Matthew 4, we're going to discover that the crowd that are following Jesus, they are not the elite of Israel. They are the ones who are sick. They are the ones who are lame. They are the ones who are forgotten. But what happens when a group of random people start to gather around a king? What exactly is he doing? And that is the key to understanding what is happening in Jesus' ministry. And that is the key to understanding what Jesus is teaching when he teaches these these teachings that we call Sermon on the Mount. If you don't get this, what we're going to talk about right now, you quite possibly could misinterpret and misread the entire Sermon on the Mount. What exactly is he doing? You know, the key to everything. This is an invitation that Jesus is actually offering. This is a doorway through which some people will enter. Not all people, some people. Because as we go through this sermon, you'll be able to identify that there are going to be some people who will not accept this. There are some people who will reject this. But nevertheless, this is the invitation. So what we're going to do today, and like I said, I want to try and land us in the moment. So how effective I do this? Well, we'll see how, how we go. Um, it worked, seemed to work this morning, so hopefully I can do that again. But what I want to do is that I want to look at a couple of places that let us know what the Sermon on the Mount is actually all about. And there's one thing that's about, which is good for us to know. But we're going to go to a couple of places, and I want you to lead you through this. There might be a lot of things we go through. I encourage you to listen to the podcast of this morning and also the podcast of today. Matthew's, uh, Matt's uh, message this morning is going to dovetail beautifully into what we're going to talk about today. So listen to both. But Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 to 17, I asked you to be in Matthew 4. We're there right now. From verse 12 says this. You guys are still with me, right? Okay. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He first went to Nazareth, then there he moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulon and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. Verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I wonder what you think about when you think about the teachings of Jesus. Because right here in verse 17, Matthew is giving a succinct summary of the one message The one sermon that Jesus is preaching and teaching wherever he goes, and the message is simply this the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. That is the one solitary message. That is the one solitary thing that Jesus is speaking, preaching, teaching, and demonstrating. It is about this kingdom. Now, quickly, I want to show you something interesting because the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount begins with these blessings or these beatitudes, you know, um, um, about, about like nine of them. But in these beatitudes, what's really interesting is this little thing which is called an inclusio, an inclusio, okay? An inclusio is, um, to put it maybe in, in our language, it's like a bracket. You know, have you ever like sort of seen like there's like, like there's a bracket, you got one bracket, you got a bunch of words, and then you got another bracket, it's kind of enclosed. And the idea is that this inclusio or these brackets, the brackets actually bring description to what is in the middle. So, what's interesting as we even kick into the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes begin with an inclusio, with a bracket. The very first um, Beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 3, says this pay attention to the language now, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of what? Theirs is the kingdom of. You guys are terrible, seriously. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to keep you on your toes. There's the kingdom of heaven. There's the first bracket, okay? Then you go down to Matthew 5 verse 10. Pay attention to the language. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, how about that? For Matthew 4 verse 17, Jesus' message is about the kingdom of heaven. Here we are, beginning of the Beatitudes, starts off with an inclusio. Guess what it's about? The kingdom of heaven. Pretty good to pay attention to that, isn't it? That's good to know. This is what Jesus is going on about. How about if we zoom out a little bit? Let's zoom out a little bit. <laughs> let's talk about another bracket, okay? Another bracket. I wonder what happens or what is happening between, let's say, Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9, right? Anyone who like, like me and you go through like, like, like a test or exam, and you just love any hack you can get. Like, give me a hack. I just want to learn it fast. Anyone else like that? Right. It, it, it might actually interest you guys to know, if you are that way, that there's another inclusio. There's another bracket within which, again... You can actually discover everything of what is happening. Guess what? I I, I can actually see everything that is happening, everything that's being described in between Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9. How about that? Imagine reading two verses and going to like like your pastor and say, you know what, Dave? I just like got the whole picture of, of Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9. It only took me like one minute. Right? You think I'd be impressed with that? I'd say, no, you just read an inclusio. (laughs) Matthew 4, verse 23. Pay attention to the language, okay? Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee teaching in the synagogues and announced the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. All right? That's the first bracket. doesn't mean too much until you see a repeat of this kind of language again. Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and the villages of the area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. That's familiar language. And healed every kind of disease and illness. That's another inclusio. What is Jesus doing with his What is his mission about? What is his ministry about? What is his teaching about? This inclusio, it describes everything that's happening in between. Jesus' teaching, Jesus' preaching, Jesus' mission is all about another kingdom, which means generally very, very little to us here living in Perth, Western Australia. Because who talks about kingdoms, right? We talk about a liberal government, the labor government, and even if they do come to power, they're not really a kingdom. So it means very little to us, doesn't it? So indulge me for a couple of moments because I want us to spark our imagination. Because to be honest, Jesus comes and he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about this another kingdom. And it doesn't mean too much today. But to, to us today living in 2021. But just imagine. Just imagine. Just use your imagination just for a couple of moments with me. Just imagine that you are living in the time of Jesus. You're living in Israel. But you're not living in a city. You're not in Jerusalem. You're actually in the outskirts. You're a little bit in the outback. You're, you're out there in the outskirts. You're in these, these tribal regions, these ancient regions of, of, around the Sea of Galilee. These regions that were once called like, you know, places like Naphtali and Zebulon. And, and you're in this fishing community, you know. You're, you're hard working. You, you come around your business and you go out every day and you fish and you come back in. You're working hard, but you're part of this community. You're not part of, you're not generally in Jerusalem. You're on the outskirts. Imagine this, on the outskirts. So you're one of these people and you're really attached to your land. You love your land. You really love your people, You know. And the thing is, like, if you were closer to Jerusalem or if you were in Jerusalem, there'd be less Gentiles around. But because you're on the outskirts, there's a bit of a mixture. You've got Jewish people. you also got a lot of Gentiles around as well. And you love your land. You love your people. And you also love your story. You'll have the story because you've been swimming in the story all of your life. The story of Israel. You remember like from such a young age, you would hear stories. You would delight in stories and you would sing about stories. And indeed, you pray about stories of your ancestors. These stories about how they lived with their God and their God is your God. But you'd know these stories and you swim in these stories and and you remember these stories, stories of, of people like King David, you know, how cool is King David? You know, it starts off as shepherd boy, gets a couple of stones and knocks off Goliath's head and then he cuts it off. You know, stories like Moses. What about stories about your people being delivered from Pharaoh? You know, you know, because of the stories, you've been swimming in all of this stuff. You know what happened at the Red Sea. In fact, you know what happened in the Jordan River and the same Jordan River where just up until a couple of moments ago... There was this random guy who was baptizing people. He was baptizing so many people, he was called John the Baptizer. So you know what happened in the Jordan River. You remember because you were part of the story. You know your story, how God has used throughout the story of, of, of Israel these unlikely people. People like Esther and people like Ruth and, and Gideon. And they are used by God in the most unlikely way to, to outwork His plans and His purposes. And, and you know, that you know the, the promise about being in the promised land. And, and you also know the promise that God has given your people that one day He's going to return to the temple, you know. He's not there right now, but, but one day the promise is just like in the days of Solomon. He is going to return. Could you imagine going to the temple? Because you've been to temple, but, but you imagine in your mind going to temple and, and literally the glory of God being there and the place being like electric and just an awareness. Everyone knows that we are in temple and God is here. And you know that's not happening right now, but you're swimming in the story. You're swimming in the promise. And you know God has promised he's coming back. He's going to be in the temple in the same way he was in the temple with Solomon. And this is going through your head and in your mind and in your heart and in your being. You know the story that you're children of Abraham. You're supposed to be this remnant throughout all the other nations are supposed to be blessed through your people. You know? All the other nations you can look out, and, and you may even look out and see all these Gentiles, these other nations around. And you know that. There's something if your people, there's something of your relationship with your God and there's supposed to be something that blesses these people. You're swimming in these beautiful, amazing stories and they're just sparking your imagination. They're sparking your dreaming and you're just in there. But the problem is, you know something's not well. You know something's wrong. You know there's something wrong because in a moment, you're about to step outside your house. And as you take a walk, as you step outside your house, as you close the door and you step out, the reality of today hits you like a ton of bricks. Yeah, we might be living in the promised land. We might be in Israel, but we are by no means living in the promise because we are not free people. There are these thugs. There are these soldiers who own our land. Maybe a couple of kilometers away, you've got some relatives. And they used to own this land because this land was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And they used to own this land, but instead of owning land, now they are having to work for someone else's land. Because these Romans came in and they kept asking for more money. And you gave them money, it wasn't enough, so they asked for more money. And it came to the point where they had to get rid of their land and instead of working their own land, they ended up having to work someone else's land, they've lost it. Maybe you've got relatives like that, not so far away, and you, you know that it's happening. And your heart sinks. Because even in this moment, even as you're looking out and you're seeing these soldiers walking by, doing their daily duty, doing their the daily, like, just walking around, making sure everything is in order, your heart sinks because you remember the promises that your parents sang about, the promises that your parents told you about. The songs, the prayers, even as, as you go, the teachers of the law, as they, as they continually talk about these promises, but your heart sinks. And you know, you know, with all these promises, it's been 400 years and we haven't heard a peep out of God, but we still got these promises. You are most definitely under the reign and rule of a ruthless, relentless, powerful king and overlord. And you know the narrative. You've been swimming in it since the age of six at least. You know it. And you may call him Caesar Augustus, but you might as well call him Pharaoh. Because you know your story. And then, on one particular day, word slips out. There's an announcement there's a gospel that's being heralded and it's close to home. Because you would have thought that if such a great announcement, if such a great gospel was actually being spoken of, it was being announced, you would have thought that it should have happened in Jerusalem, but it's not happening in Jerusalem. It's actually happening close to home. It's happening around Capernaum. It's actually happening around this, this, this fishing community. It's actually happening out in the outskirts. And this news, it's spreading. And it's not just this announcement. It's not just this news. It's actually accomplished, uh, accompanied by great authority. Great authority. I wonder what kind of announcement would get your attention if you were in that moment. Matthew 4 verse 23 to 25 reads like this. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. And large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the 10 towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, from the east and the east of the Jordan River. That's the announcement that's going to get your attention. That's the announcement that you're waiting for. And that's the announcement that's going to cause you to follow this unorthodox prophet who is walking around the area because you are swimming in Israel's story. And as this is happening, as this announcement is happening, as Matthew four seventeen is being proclaimed and taught, in your mind your imagination takes you away into the story and you slip back into the different ways that you've heard about this idea of a kingdom and you've heard about the reign of God. Uh, the, 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 it slips back into, into Israel's scripture and you remember the times that you've heard about this, about you've read about this, the times that Yahweh has revealed himself to your people. And you know that the way that people are gathered, because you know Yahweh has a certain way of gathering people when he's establishing his reign and his rule. And you also understand that when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, you understand because you know You're swimming in Israel stories. You know that when he's using that language, he is not talking about one day we're going to leave earth to go to heaven. You know that Jesus is talking about heaven invading and breaking into earth right here, right now. This is electric. This is electric. And you know a pattern's been set. A pattern's already been established. In fact, the start of this pattern begins on the very first page of Scripture. Funnily enough, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is when we start hearing about this kind of kingdom language. Genesis 1 verse 26, And God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. That word reign, that's a kingdom word. That's a king word. They're going to reign. They will reign. From the very beginning, you know the story. And this powerful God, this creative God, this all-knowing God, this God who's above every other God, He has chosen not just to, to show that He is king and that He reigns, but He has chosen to share His rule and His reign with these humans. So that his kingdom is established on earth, and so that his kingdom extends to throughout the earth. You know? And in some kind of godlike capacity, we as humanity, as his people, we don't just inhabit this world, but we remake it wherever we go. Isn't that true? I was talking to our youth on Friday and talking about some of this stuff. And um, I was, did, were you paying attention? Yeah, I'm sure you were. I was just talking about being made in the image of God. One of the teenagers asked this question, what has it been to be made in the image of God? What an amazing question. There's something about humanity. You chuck a monkey in the jungle and they eat bananas. You chuck a bunch of humans in the jungle and guess what? We make a city. There's agency. There's something about the way that we're made. There's this ruling. There's this reigning that is upon us as image bearers of God that we actually take the world somewhere. Right? And if God has actually chosen to share his ruling and his reigning with humanity, that must mean that we as humanity, we need to make some good, wise decisions, right? We need to make some good, wise decisions. We need to know what is a good, wise decision. But we all know the story. And again, you're swimming in Israel's story. So you know what happens next. There's this rebellion, isn't there? There's a tree, and funnily enough, it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in order for God to share his reigning, you're going to have to make some good decisions, but all of a sudden, there's a tree, the knowledge of good and evil. So God chooses Adam and Eve, who take it upon themselves to determine what is good and what is right on their own terms. In other words, they take upon this posture of self autonomy. I'm going to determine. God said this, but we're not going to do what God says. We're going to choose this pathway. And all of a sudden, there's this alternate kingdom that's established, this kingdom of chaos, which is established and competing against God's kingdom and His his good world. And the question is, what exactly is God going to do about this alternate rebellious kingdom, which is causing chaos? And you read through the book of Genesis, and you see key markers you see, see places where you see the uh, places like Genesis, where, where the sons of God come down and they look at the, the, the daughters of, of humanity and they do crazy stuff. And then you go to Tower of Babel. And these are key moments that actually tell us that something is going on, that this alternate kingdom is causing chaos. There is darkness, there is violence, there is murder. And then all of a sudden, after that, what does God do? He chooses a family, doesn't he? And all of this is like asking the question how is god going to actually reassert his kingdom in this world how is he going to reassert his rule in this world over the kingdoms of this world so he chooses a family abram and he chooses his family and he sets them apart as a contrast as an alternate humanity who live who are supposed to live under his reign and we know the story father abraham has many sons many sons has Father Abraham? And all of a sudden, all these many sons and daughters make their way to, Ye- to Egypt, and Egypt starts to figure out, "Oh my goodness, Father Abraham has many sons and many sons. has Father Abraham. You know what? And they're looking around, and all of a sudden, there is this huge population. So in Egypt, the Egyptians say, there is a threat here, so they start to enslave Egypt. Uh, Israel, not Egypt. They enslave Israel, don't they? And what happens is that they are enslaved and they come under the most powerful king who ruled over the most powerful earthly kingdom at the time, Pharaoh. And what does God do in the story? Again, you're swimming through the story. You know the story. What's happening is sparking all of these things in your mind, your imagination. God sends this man who's called Moses to Pharaoh. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, you better let these people go. And Pharaoh says, I have no idea who your God is. I could not give a stuff about you, God. I, there is no way I'm letting these people go. And all of a sudden, there is this battle. There is this conflict between the kingdom of this world, Egypt, and the kingdom of God. And who wins? God wins, right? God wins. Smashes them. Wins. Praise the Lord. He wins. And, and Moses leads Israel out of Egypt and they go and they pass through the Red Sea. They turn around and the Red Sea comes and, and, and drowns all their enemies. It's amazing. And from there you have this great worship and praise and song. And after that moment with the Red Sea and they're singing and they're praising, Israel lifts up their praise to God. And in an Exodus, they actually use this familiar word again, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. It's a kingly word again. It's a kingdom word again. There's this kingdom thread that's passing through. And from that point where there's this singing and this proclaiming that Yahweh is king, God then invites Israel to a mountain where he gives them some wedding vows or the Ten Commandments. And he says, this is what it means to live under my reign. This is what it means to be my people. God has established his reign by forming a people, by confronting evil, by liberating this people, and then inviting them to live under his reign and his rule. This is how God asserts his kingdom in this world. And they enter into this covenantal relationship, which is really, really significant. And I know, like Matt and I were talking about that word blessed last week. This covenantal relationship, because that word blessed is more than just like a, like a happy or like, gee, you're blessed. No, this is covenantal relationship. It's, a, it's, a, it's an intimate relationship that's happening. So you have all these things that are kind of going through your mind. Israel's story, you've been swimming in it. And like even like from up until the age of six, you've meditated and you've known and you've memorized so much of scripture. You know all this stuff. And in that moment, your mind slips back to where you currently are. You're back in front of your house. You just closed the front door. You're looking at the Romans over there. And for a moment, you've slipped away. But now you're back into the present reality. So you know that when you start hearing this announcement, when you start hearing that this announcement of this gospel, which is accompanied by this great authority, by these sounds, when you start hearing that this guy, this prophet, is saying, repent of your sins and turn for the kingdom of heaven is near, you know what it means. It means that the king is reasserting his reign, that he is forming a new people, that he's liberating them from the kingdoms of this world, that he will defeat evil, and that he is inviting these people to live under his reign and his rule. You know that because you know the story. Does that make sense? Which makes sense when you read the beginning of the sermon in Matthew chapter 5, and it reads like this. Seeing the crowd... He went up on the mountain and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him and He opened up His mouth and He taught them by saying, Jesus goes up to a mountain of all places. Fancy that. He has this random group of people following Him. Now this says His disciples, but in Matthew disciples and that word follow are so intrinsically linked and jesus at this present time in the story he's picked four but he hasn't picked 12 right he hasn't picked 12 so the crowds who are following him there are these people who come to the mountain crazy and he sits down which is pretty significant and he starts opening his mouth The Sermon on the Mount is about one solitary idea, New Spring Church. That one solitary idea is this. It is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of heaven. And how do I live in it? How do I embody it? How does it outwork in my life? It is one solitary idea. Jesus' message is repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. And we've talked about that word repent a lot over the last couple of years. Because when someone comes to me and says, Dave, you need to repent, initially I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm not even a person. But that word repentance is an invitation. When we actually see that word repentance, it should bring such joy and excitement into our life because we are being invited to actually think differently. We're being invited to see something differently. I like what one, of, um, one theologian kind of says, this repent means to stop. Something is happening that is going to force you to make a decision and reevaluate everything you thought, everything that you knew about the world, everything you thought you knew about yourself and everything you thought you knew about God and it's going to involve a radical reorganization of your priorities and your values or in other words, repent. Something is happening. Because when Jesus is going through this sermon, it makes no sense. Someone's going to slap you, give them the other cheek. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You're supposed to love your neighbor. Are you serious? My neighbor wants to kill me right now. You want me to love him? That makes no sense. Unless something else has happened that makes what Jesus is teaching us to do absolutely obvious. And Jesus is preaching, and he is proclaiming that something has happened, something is here, which means that the way that we live is completely different right now. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near. It is here. It has come. And in light of that, rethink everything. Stop. Reconsider everything that you've thought. Everything you've thought about this world. Everything you've thought about God. Everything you've thought about yourself. And this is going to cause you to reevaluate every single priority you've ever had in your entire life. Repent because the kingdom of God is here. Now evidently, as Jesus is going around He's doing a lot of teaching, isn't he? A lot of teaching. Matthew chapter 5 to 7 is this portion of scripture, which is the teachings of Jesus. So evidently, it means that to live in this new kingdom is going to require a whole bunch of learning. Right? Which means that we as the family of God. We need to have a lot of love and a lot of grace and a lot of encouragement to each other because there are going to be so many times where we don't get it right. But we are actually learning this stuff. I like how Timothy Gombas actually like sort of put some of this, this, this paradigm, especially when it comes to discipleship. He kind of, you know how scripture says you need to take off the old man, you need to put on the new and like sometimes for me as growing up, I would just get so upset with myself. I kept on doing bad stuff, wrong stuff, sinful stuff. And like I can't, why, why can't I just put on the new, why can't I put, and I'm getting stressed out. And he says like, this is the reality. We're now living in this new world. And, and what Jesus wants us to do, he wants us to try this on. Try on this new humanity. Try on this new way of living. And as you do, and as you become more proficient, you're going to discover that this is what it looks like to be truly human. This is what it looks like to be the church. This is what it looks like to actually be part of the kingdom, to embody the kingdom in this world. And we already know because we're swimming in Israel's scriptures that God's chosen people is supposed to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. So to live in this way is not just going to be for our benefit and our flourishment, It's also going to be a blessing to the other nations. God has come to reestablish his kingdom in this present evil age. And he is doing it. He has done it in a similar way to how he's done it in the past. He forms a new people. He liberates them from the kingdoms of this world. He will defeat evil. He's defeated evil on the cross. And then he is inviting these people to live under his reign and to live under his rule. But to live under his reign is an invitation that not everyone will accept. Not everyone enters. Only those who are poor in spirit. Anyone bankrupt before God today? I am so stuffed before the Lord. (laughs) It's unfortunate because people look at me and I say, oh, you're the senior pastor. And you don't realize, I'm stuffed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who enter, they're poor in spirit. They're obedient. Their their righteousness in some way exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And in this kingdom of heaven, you're going to find the most unlikely people. And these unlikely people, they're blessed. Not because of something they do. They're blessed because of what they're part of. That's why they're blessed. And Jesus, in a surprising way, he starts to talk about the type of people you're going to see in his kingdom. And again, it's this crowd that have been following him. They're lame. <laughs> they're demon-possessed. They're epileptic. They're paralyzed. They're not the intellectuals per se. I'm sure there were some smart people, you know what I mean, but he says, the kingdom of God, you're going to see people who you would never expect. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn. My goodness, they're going to be part of it. Blessed are the meek, who know how to use power and influence, not to abuse people, but to cause people to flourish. You know. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they're going to be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evils against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These people are blessed. And why are they blessed? Because the kingdom of God is here, you see. And the kingdom of God belongs to these people. And because, New Spring Church, because the kingdom belongs to you and you're part of the kingdom of heaven, guess what? You're blessed. Because you are part of this, you are blessed. You don't need to work for your blessing. You don't need to strive for your blessing. By very nature of being part of this kingdom, you're blessed. You're blessed. Now, now, here's the kicker. Because we're part of this kingdom, now we have to learn how to walk it out. Now we have to learn how to embody this. Because I have said yes to the invitation and I've said yes to Jesus being my king because I know that God has come to reestablish his kingdom in this world and I need to learn what it means to come under the rule and the reign of Jesus in his kingdom and that's going to take some work. And that's going to take some journeying. And that's going to take family. And that is going to take community. It is actually going to take us being the church of Jesus Christ. I have not even got to one of the Beatitudes. (laughs) Go listen to Matt sing. But as we go through the Beatitudes, we're going to actually see how they're rooted in Israel's scriptures as well. Okay. And they're going to bring greater understanding. But all I wanted to do for today I just wanted us to get into the story. Because if we can see the story in this light, from this perspective, from this vantage, it will radically change the way that we read the rest and the way that we walk out the rest and the way that we we, kind of want to embody the rest. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. And I'm part of that kingdom. And so are you. If you've made Jesus Lord of your life and if you are part of the kingdom of heaven, Be encouraged tonight. You are blessed because the kingdom of God is here. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Father, I ask that in some way that you have taken those words and made them understandable to the point that we would start living and walking this out. I ask that you will come and transform us, Lord. I I present this sermon series before you. This sermon series, The Teachings of Jesus, The Sermon on the Mount. And I ask that you would do what we cannot do in this series, God. Father, that you would come and that you would shape us and that you would mold us. Father, I ask that there will be such passion and such glee and such zeal and so, such enthusiasm, knowing that we are blessed, that we are part of your kingdom, that we are loved, that we are cherished, that we are the church of Jesus Christ, that we are the people of God through which the nations will be blessed, through which you are establishing once again your covenantal reign and your rule, and you're pushing out your good new creation, Lord. Father, I ask that we would walk in that and we would live in that in greater measure, we pray. In Jesus' name.